Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top, the body-positive, sex-positive show with your host, Auntie Vice. This show contains explicit language, not suitable for most minors or easily offended majors. It contains opinionated discussion about politics, race, sex, fat folks, gender, which may not be suitable for conservatives. Additionally, some shows may contain references to science, statistics, history, research, mathematics, and reality, which may not be suitable for American evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This is your host, Auntie Vice. On today's show, I have conversations with two great disability advocates. The first is Kristen Schultz. They run Chronic Sex Chat and talk to us about disability, dating, and life in general. We're then joined by Katori Knight. They are a performance artist, a burlesque dancer, and they are working on a new project around complex PTSD. Finally, because Star Trek keeps coming up over and over with people, we include a clip of Sharon and Amber Whitford talking about new generations. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. Thanks for staying with us. This is your host. I'm here with Kristen Schultz. They run Chronic Sex Chat. They're a podcaster, a blogger, writer, sex educator, and disability advocate. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. This is wonderful. I I kind of wanted to start. You have, I found you through Twitter, actually. You, you do a ton of stuff on Twitter. And one of the things that I've found in, in work is that for disabled folks, it's actually kind of an empowering platform. Has that been the case for you? Oh, absolutely. I think when I started on Twitter back in 2009, which, wow, it's been 10 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm old, officially. I, I didn't really see it as a way to talk more about disability. In fact, I'd kind of joined because at the time in college, I was studying like the Middle East and the Arab Spring was happening. And so it was really a way to keep in touch with things that were going on on the other side of the world. And now over the last, I would say probably four years, it's really exploded the disability rights movement on Twitter and it's grown exponentially. Um, and we're having some really important conversations about things like how many white people are running your organization versus like being inclusive of all ethnicities and races. And, you know, I could go on and on and list all the identities, but we're having really important conversations that are way past needed because of Twitter and because of how it's bringing people together, which is really, really cool. It is. So there's a couple of big hashtags trending right now, and one of them are ables are weird, which I have found fascinating for people who are not following it. It's people who are who have various disabilities posting what abled folks do. And a lot of it involves just violating consent, touching people without permission, and the way they think about disabled people, you know, dismissing us as, you know, just thinking we're all asexual and, you know, just weird stuff. So, and that intersects with a lot of your work because you talk about sex and disability. So what are the, some of the just basic things you'd like people to know about sex and disability? Oh God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the main thing is that just because somebody has a disability or a chronic illness or 
any other health condition, it doesn't rob them of who they are in other spaces, right? So I'm white and being white, I have a lot of privilege and being disabled doesn't change the fact that I have white privilege. Being disabled doesn't change the fact that I am in a middle-class home right now, even though I grew up in poverty. Like, it doesn't change any of the privileges I hold, which means it doesn't change any of the work I need to do around those privileges. And, you know, that includes looking at, are we including trans disabled people and things? And are we including LGBTQ plus disabled people and things and just being really mindful of the fact that just because someone's disabled doesn't mean they're automatically asexual or automatically like can't use their genitals or like automatically don't think someone's hot. I don't know. Just to remember that we're all still just people as opposed to kind of that like like early 1900s freak show mentality because that's that's a lot of what's being discussed in the Ables are weird hashtag. It is jarring. It is. It's like I had worked as an in-home health aide to put myself through college. So I had seen it from that perspective, being out with clients and how people react to them. It's just incredible how people react to seeing somebody with a physical disability in public. There's this weird entitlement to their body in a strange way. And asking really inappropriate questions and, and all of that. You also do a lot of work around, you know, just general sex education. So you have disabilities yourself. How does that work when you're trying to date? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, it makes life interesting. Right. <laughs> I just wrote a piece for a site called The Big Fling about how dating when you have a disability can actually be dangerous. So in addition to potentially putting ourselves in inaccessible spaces, right? So as someone who has some mobility issues, if I'm going on a date with someone and they've picked the place, right? I'm going to have to like try to figure out if I'm having to go upstairs, how to move around in the space. Uh, is there a bathroom nearby? Um, are people going to be covered in Axe body spray? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Which should be just banned flat out. I'm sorry. That's, there's no reason for that to exist ever. It should. I, I've recognized lately that it's younger people to like mid-30s bathe in Axe body spray. And then like after that, it's see the older people just like bathe in very fragrant soap. <laughs> which neither are okay, <laughs> honestly. It's thinking through all of these things, right? Before you even get to, like, dating prep and, oh, what questions should I ask them? And do they think I'm cute? And all of those normal things that are already really, like, it, they bring a lot of anxiety. And then you have to add access on top of that. And then concerns around maybe your physical, emotional, mental safety. And it's just exhausting. It is. It is. Especially if you have a disability that isn't readily obvious. I have lived with bipolar one since I was a kid. And so figuring out when to disclose that in a relationship is, is always tricky because there's such a bias against, you know, people have this vision of, of what it means when you have a serious mental illness. 
do you, how far into a relationship do you go before you feel safe disclosing versus knowing that you could disclose and somebody could flee for the hills? You know, I think that becomes a big question for a lot of people. You do advising and such. What would be, and what do you advise people when it comes to disclosing various disabilities that may not be readily apparent? I am a big fan of writing all that stuff in your bio and being really upfront with it because I've had some friends who like will go on dates and maybe they haven't had a picture of a mobility aid in their dating profile. And then the person shows up and the friend is using like a walker and the person's like, Oh, like you're crippled. Okay. Like there's, yeah, there's no thinking through like, Oh, well this person might just have different needs than I do. It tends to be an invitation I found often for like more ableism and more discriminatory comments and could potentially put your safety at risk. So I always tell people to disclose up front. And if if it's a situation where you're like going on a blind date, like to disclose on the date, because one of the things I deal with with my health issues is I have like very limited energy sometimes. Like, the last thing I want to do is get super invested in somebody and then be like, hey, so here's my EHR printout and here's all the health issues <laughs> I have and have them just, like, bolt, like, run away from me. So I always try to be mindful of that, of how much energy I'm putting into, like, any relationship, friendship even, if I feel like they're not going to be supportive about health stuff. And being disabled is a full time. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just between the number of times you have to call a doctor to get them to follow up and fill out paperwork and insurance. Yeah. I mean, it's it's exhausting in and of itself. So to have somebody who's a partner that's not supportive, it's not going to work. You had posted a bunch of stuff around making conferences and such more accessible. And, you know, it actually triggered me to rethink, like, how do I post about events that I host? So for people who are organizing and bringing stuff together, just to make their events accessible, what are some of the guidelines that people can do to ease the the stress on disabled people for accessing various spaces? Oh, that's such a good question. I usually tell people when in doubt, ask, because you may have a friend who might have difficulty with hearing, for example, and you just don't know it because they haven't brought it up. And if you're hosting an event that friend is attending, maybe they want to have a chance to tell you like, oh, hey, by the way, can we please use a microphone so everyone can hear? So, you know, inviting feedback, inviting uh, conversation around access needs is super important. But I think, you know, people are starting, I think maybe it's just me, but like for about at least the mobility side. So people are being more cognizant of like if there's a ton of stairs or if there's elevator access and that kind of stuff. Someone who has chemical sensitivities and migraines, sometimes people don't think about are there fluorescent lights in my space that could trigger a migraine or do we have fucking horrible blade plugins (laughs) that are going to send someone to the ER? Like, even looking further, right, like if you're hosting an event in a space like a hotel, does that hotel, a lot of them will pump perfume and scents through their HVAC system to like get you feeling comfortable. So, you know, are you checking that that hotel isn't doing that? 
there's a lot about like fragrance and chemical sensitivity stuff over on my friend Rachel Rose's site. It's Edenish.com. Yeah, their site is great. Oh my God. It's so amazing. And like, she's like, I can't even, I can't even begin to describe like she's beautiful. She does pole dancing. Mm -hmm. She's just so smart. I, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Reading your stuff is actually one of those things that got me to, you know, I knew people had sensitivity. And so it, but it did get me thinking of, okay, so if I'm booking a space, just putting in, you know, please don't wear heavy perfumes and colognes and all of that to reduce the stress, you know, little, and it doesn't take that much to make a big difference for folks. You are also a huge Star Trek fan. I am. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite thing about the show? Oh, I think one of my most favorite things is exploring like having the ability to go and explore different characters and like their storylines as we age. I think that's fascinating. So like as a kid, Jordy was my favorite character. I'm I'm big into like next generation. And for people who aren't familiar, Jordy is played by LeVar Burton and he has a visor because he's blind, but he can use this visor to see. Even before I knew what disability justice was, like like, yeah, Jordy, get it. And I had, like, <laughs> you imagine little, like, six-year-old me being, go, Jordy. I had, like, little visor sunglasses. And I Aww. was like, Jordy, my best friend is Data. Like. Oh, that's awesome. It was, I was the nerdiest kid, I swear to God. But <laughs> and then now that I'm older, examining how Data is treated and, like, there's an episode where Starfleet wants to like commandeer him and they're treating him just like a machine and Captain Picard has to like defend Data's humanity and explores like all of this really heavy moralistic and ethical stuff. And then sometimes they're just like, you know, Loxana Troy shows up and everybody's talking about getting married naked. Like, <laughs> The juxtaposition, too, between that really heavy stuff and some of the sillier things mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. that's really, really fun. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me the number of folks I know who are in the disability advocacy community and enormous Star Trek fans. Like, that Venn diagram's real tight. It really uh, is. It really is. And there's there's a great podcast episode from Women at Warp where they actually investigate a couple of characters who are like disability representations throughout a couple of different series and like oh how interesting oh my god that podcast is amazing i have so many episodes i need to listen to but <laughs> like they have a really good one about sexual violence too in the star trek world and they're doing some amazing work around kind of unpacking societal stuff within star trek it's fascinating the other thing is you identify as gender fluid and we have an ongoing conversation on this show. That's a term that has a pretty wide definition. So for you, what does that mean for you? There's a lot involved with it. I think I really like using the term queer to define my sexuality, for instance, because I'm pansexual. So I really think everybody's attractive. I'm also politically engaged, a la like the late 80s, early 90s act up fight AIDS movement. And so like 
the term queer really represents who I am, like as a being. I really liked gender queer for a while, but I I navigated more towards gender fluid because some days I am super femme and I just want to paint my nails and like literally watch my little pony and like uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many rainbow dash things in my house um <laughs> you know and like wear a dress and go be girly and frilly and fun and or you know conversely be treated like a slut um yeah to be yeah. honest <laughs> or <laughs> on the flip side there are some days where I am like really aggro bruh like <laughs> probably a terrible example of toxic masculinity um, <laughs> you know like watch ghost adventures with all the bro dude oh my god um a lot of days i'm somewhere in between and it's just about finding that term that fit for me and really allowed for a lot more of that fluidity and space and change and that's kind of what led me to using gender fluid and how did you come to find that term you know about yourself you and i were both born at a point where you know you're assigned male or female at birth and raised that way so how did you come to explore your gender i have to be super honest like growing up there was a point where i was 12 and i grew up with my uncle living with us and he was about 12 years older than me and we were always kind of doing the bra dude thing together like we'd play video games and we'd watch star trek <laughs> like we'd play laser tag whatever you know typical more assigned at male type of activities for that time period and he was in basic training about the time i was 12 and i like dug into his closet and found one of his suits and i was like i just wonder what i'd look like if i was a dude and you know got all gussied up like a dude and really felt very proud of it you know pushed back against that feeling really hard dressed super femme for a lot of high school and showed my titties in class like all sorts of things that uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. didn't need to happen but um, <laughs> and it wasn't until I was in college and I had made the point of telling my mom who is not a great person and not in my life because of that but sometimes I felt like I was a dude and I was told basically to not talk about it again. So I didn't really think anything more of it until like the summer of 2016. I was watching an episode of a great show on YouTube called Queer Ghost Hunters. Like I'm actually like kind of friends with their leader now. Oh, how awesome. (laughs) Yeah, one of the people's partners has rheumatoid arthritis. So we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. The the premise behind the show is it's a bunch of queer and gender non-conforming slash trans people who are going into spaces that like our people have been for centuries and kind of trying to find like our ghosts. So well, fascinating. Going into like nunneries and you know, things uh-huh. like that. And one of the people on there was gender queer. And I was like, oh, well that kind of feels good that feels like a good idea and I kind of dove into it further and this was at the beginning of me really diving into sex ed work anyway yeah just kind of really dove in hard and well my husband and the first thing he said was like but you but you have a lot of dresses <laughs> he gets it more now but like yeah yeah <laughs> you know 
but yeah, that's how I found gender queer. And then through doing sex ed work and kind of expanding my own horizons, found gender fluid and and all the different terms that I've kind of explored and tried them on as different hats to see if they fit. <laughs> Fantastic. And now I also want a list of like everything you watch because you have this amazing watch listen list. <laughs> Just need like I could totally send one. Oh to my you. god! I'm like, there's so many things. I'm now gonna go down a rabbit hole on the internet on and just not come back for a week. If you've never watched Cutthroat Kitchen, Alton Brown has made people use a spreader bar <laughs> while cooking, and he is very dom in that series. So, if you want to have you know, pleasant dreams of Alton Brown, like I have, watch Cutthroat Kitchen. <laughs> I forget who posted it, but somebody posted on Twitter that they had a fantasy that Paul Hollywood was flogging them in a DS scene and Alton Brown was critiquing it. Oh my God. <laughs> I thought that is the most subby fantasy ever. Like That's my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to hold on to that image for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the interview. If people want to find you, if they want to see your work, if they want to hire you, where do you we go? You can find most of my stuff over at kirstenschultz.org, and it's K-I-R-S-T-E-N-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Or you can also just Google chronic sex, and it's pretty easy to find me from there, and then... I have a link to the other site and and both sites have links to social media, but the Twitter account is at chronic sex cat. And then the Instagram account, which is the other one I'm really more active on is at chronic underscore self underscore love. And I do stuff on Facebook too, but it's mostly just posting articles for people to read because <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> Well, and I will say the the Twitter feed and the Instagram feed of your stuff is fantastic. I would encourage everybody to go and follow those. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and talk more with you. Hi. You need music, a sound guy, or a podcast done? Well, why don't you call a Serious Productions? Hi, my name is Sharon, founder of Serious Production, a mobile DJ company and audio production for podcasts and music. Our DJ service handles birthdays, graduations, weekend weddings, weekday weddings, speaking events, etc. Our ASP staff has 15 years in DJ audio, music, and podcasts. Our ASP staff will help you to create a combination of services which meets your unique needs. We can provide custom price bids for your jobs. We offer discounts for multiple services, repeated customers, and special sales. Please ask the staff about repeated business and discounts. Our podcast special we have now is recording, editing, mixing, and uploading up to 100 minutes of recording for $500. For more information, please call 707-867-1411. That's 707-867-1411. 
888-888-1411 or come to our website aseriousproduction.com that's a serious production.com can't wait to hear from you thank you Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. We're here today with Tori Knight. They are a performer uh, across multiple genres. They are a conceptual artist specializing in interactive theater and just an all-around cool person. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. I've wanted to have you on for a while. Let's start with your performance stuff. You do burlesque and drag, and you started in burlesque. What got you into that? I started doing performing art as a child, and my family and I started a haunted house together that we designed and ran every year, which turned into a performing arts uh, nonprofit for the kids in our city. And through that, I did a lot of performing arts as well. And then I started doing Rocky Horror Shadowcast shows when I was 17. And that's where I started stripping. There is in on the West Coast at the beginning of a shadow cast for Rocky Horror. There is a performer who will come out and lip sync to the opening song and do a strip tease. And I immediately wanted that role. I did not get the role the first time I auditioned because I quote removed my clothes too quickly. I responded that I had never had that criticism before, and then. I was sick for a number of years, became debilitated, and did not perform, and then found my way um, back into socializing and kind of getting back out into the world again through karaoke. And at karaoke, I made friends with Robert Ferry, an amazing comedian out of Sacramento, who invited me to perform at his variety show called Retro Crush. So I was singing with that show and met uh, the Bodacious Bombshells, who... We kind of had a mutual, hey, let's work together. <laughs> you look like fun. You like what I'm doing. Great. Let's let's join forces. And that really began burlesque for me. So as you have evolved through different types of burlesque, through the initial Rocky Horror, just take your clothes off as fast as you can, through comedic and sexy pieces, and now to more political stuff, how has that changed how you see and feel about your own body? So when I was younger, I'm not sure that it was really thinking that much about my body and about body politics. But as I got older and was dealing with my body becoming, you know, my enemy, I used to be a competitive figure skater and suddenly I can't use my body the way that I used to. Um, I was diagnosed first in 2007 with fibromyalgia and myofascial pain syndrome. Uh, Later on last year was finally diagnosed correctly with PTSD and functional neurological disorder. I lost that connection with my body and felt like this thing that I loved and was so much a part of my identity no longer fit with me. And the first time I went on stage to do a burlesque performance, I it felt like I was reclaiming my body for the first time. And I have been sexually assaulted. I've been raped. And being on stage and taking off my clothing and being sexy is my way of taking ownership of my body and I'm always in control. And I I love that. I love being in charge of creating an experience for someone um, that they enjoy or is meaningful to them. And then 
I guess over time, I became more and more focused on the ethics of what I'm doing, what the larger social implications are, and wanting really to turn into that and um, use my body to that my body that was once you know my my hindrance, my enemy, uh, use it as a tool to bring awareness to issues, to bring voice to people who've been silenced. Things like that. Which gives us a great lead in to disability. So you've had an ongoing and difficult struggle in getting a correct diagnosis and getting treatment. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of your history with disability and where you're at now? Sure. Uh, so I had a number of adverse childhood experiences. For people who aren't familiar with that, they are often referred to as ACEs. It was a, an ongoing study. Uh, there was an original study, and it's still, they're doing on, ongoing research. A study by Kaiser and the CDC with over 17,000 participants that found that adverse childhood experiences greatly affect physical and mental health outcomes later in life. And these are, I mean, we're talking about like diabetes, cancer, heart attack, uh, risky behavior choices, substance abuse, things like that. For example, a person who has six or more, there are 10 total possible, and um, six or more adverse childhood experiences is expected to live 20 fewer years than someone without any. I have eight adverse experiences from my childhood that have contributed my illness, but I didn't know any of that at first. So when I was younger, I was pretty deeply traumatized and felt like I didn't really know how to function as a human being. And I didn't realize that when I said things like, the world feels like a movie to me, I don't feel like I really exist in it. I didn't know just how dangerous that was. And I didn't get help for a really long time. In 2007, I was visiting my family back in Pennsylvania and became really sick and I didn't understand what was wrong. I was pretty quickly diagnosed with fibromyalgia and myofascial pain syndrome. And while I agreed that those diagnoses, diagnoses seemed to fit, I, I felt like there was something still wrong. There's something that's not being addressed. And I said that doctors for over 11 years. And I don't know how many of them really took me seriously, but I never saw any results. And I think that a, a large part of it is the new diagnoses that I have, they are they weren't very well known at that time. So it's very likely that the doctors probably just didn't know about them. But last year, I after going back to school, so okay, backtrack more, sorry. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2007 and went from running a small uh, Halloween animatronics company to being completely debilitated within about eight months. And I spent four years getting more and more sick and depressed. And those really were a feedback loop for each other until I became really suicidal in about 2010. And at that point, I started seeing a counselor and started getting better, better, and then went back to school in 2012. And I was really terrified, thought that I would not be able to keep up and found that I excelled and really loved it. I became a student leader, eventually transferred to UC Berkeley and graduated with distinction in 2017. And then 
went to work for a nonprofit affordable housing company out of college. And within, I'd say about eight months, I found that I had gotten very, very sick. I was out um, on a hike with my partner and my legs gave out from under me, which had never happened before. And I spent the next couple of hours in what I now know um, is called an, a non-epileptic seizure. And my symptoms just got progressively worse. I was unable to work again, but the illness was far more debilitating than it, it used to be. I was in these seizures um, every day, almost constantly, and the pain was really excruciating, and I felt like I was just disappearing as a person, and all that was left was pain. And then in October of 2018, I went specialist after specialist, until I finally was diagnosed with a functional neurological disorder and CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And the important thing that I learned was that the CPTSD was the underlying cause of everything that I've been experiencing. So since you've gotten your diagnosis, well, first, let's start with what was it like to finally have a diagnosis that really fit what you were experiencing? It was a breath of fresh air, really. <laughs> um, it's this thing that had been open and wondering, just, am I a, a hypochondriac? Am I like, what's, what's wrong with me? Um, it's finally answered. And now I know how to treat it. I can start moving forward with that and not have to worry about, if, am I wasting my time with this? Is this the right treatment? Now I, I know, and it's great, and I'm making huge progress. That's fantastic. So what type of treatments come with this? I mean, some people are familiar with PTSD and cognitive behavioral therapy and experiential therapies tend to work very well. Is it the same thing? Yes and no. Cognitive behavioral therapy is definitely part of it, but the within that, the types of therapy used are different. So while EMDR, which is eye movement related, is good for Simple PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder has some treatments that work slightly differently. Currently, I'm using uh, lifespan integration, and that's going pretty well. I'm so glad to hear that. So with the trauma, with you have like this fascinating history with your, your own body and your identity. You go from being able-bodied and you have into to being disabled. You do a lot of body work on stage, and it's tied in both with your mental health and your physical health. How has your identity changed over time? When I was younger, I think I was really struggling to find something that I felt like I could control. And my identity was really based around being strong physically and being smart. I was like, I'm smart. And when I got sick, uh, my cognition and memory and physical health all went away pretty much at once. And I had to figure out who I was without those things. And that was, you know, for a 22-year-old, pretty difficult. <laughs> but I think ultimately was a good exercise for me because I, I learned to value things like being a good community member, being a, a good friend, like learning how to show up for people. Um, focusing more on my actions instead of whatever is inherent within me. And that has 
been a way to bring more happiness and joy into my life and to have sort of a healthier outlook on things. So when you say be a good community member, and you are, you're incredibly active in your community, what is being a good community member? I would say showing up is the most important thing that a person can do. And it's difficult, which is why it's so important. Uh, you don't have to have the like best ideas or, or anything. Just we need people to show up to things and be part of the conversation, be part of the helping. I think that's the, the number one thing that I'd like to see. Also being proactive and trying to figure out not only what your community needs, but what you need to affect the person that you are and how you can help. Uh, so going to workshops and learning about like restorative justice or you know mediation, that kind of thing. Maybe learning about the things that the homeless people in your area are going through so that you have more knowledge of how you can interact with and help them in positive ways. Things like that. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. You also, about, I think it's three years ago now, came out widely as non-binary. And on the show, we have an ongoing conversation because it's such a broad term and it's such a new term that not everybody understands it. So for you, what is non-binary? My personal experience is that I, I vary. Sometimes I feel more on one side of the spectrum than the other, so I might feel more femme or more masculine one day. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the middle. Sometimes I feel like I'm both at once. Sometimes I feel like I'm nothing. I think my self-image, when I think of myself, is like a green, uh, like a gray alien creature. Um, that's kind of shapeless. <laughs> I like that. I like that. One of the criticisms that has come up in, you know, as people start to identify as non-binary, and especially because it's associated with people under 25, right? If you're under 25, it's almost 10% of folks identify as non-binary, where by the time you get to my age group, for those of us over 45, it's less than half a percent. A lot of folks think it's just a trend. Are these kids jumping on the bandwagon and trying to be cool, or, or, or what do you think is going on? Well, I mean, I highly doubt it. it. Maybe. I can't really say. I can't speak to each person's experience, but I mean, personally, when it comes to whether or not I believe another person's experience, I just default to believing what they tell me because they're the one that had the experience, not me. <laughs> I wouldn't know. But I will say that for me, I know that I was experiencing sort of like this gender dysphoria with what my parents were telling me I should be by about the age of eight, at least, that's when I became like super tomboy. That was the only term that I had back then to describe it. I had my friends at school call me Jack, my initials backwards. Then I became just so ridiculed for it. I was in a very small school with like, if we had like 90 people in our class and I became the reject of the, well, there were like one boy reject and one girl reject since I'm, you know, a, AFAB assigned female at birth, I got lumped into the the one reject for the the girl's side and was really relentlessly uh, picked on. And so I started to try to conform and be less non-binary in my presentation in order to fit in or just lessen the the ridiculing. But it kind of continued anyway. (laughs) And then when I became, when I got into high school, I just went like really weird. 
Like, I'm going to be the weird kid that stands out because I'm weird. And I think it was also a defense mechanism to try to keep people from asking too many questions about my personal life. <laughs> you kind of off. And then quickly as an adult, I became sick and I didn't really know what my body was anymore, who I was anymore. And so I went hyper femme at that point because I was treated better. And I was having such a hard time being able to socialize to begin with that I didn't have the energy to fight the, the gender battle on top of that. And people were just nicer to me when I looked super femme. So I did that for a number of years until I came to the Bay Area and started doing drag. And was like, oh, this is so much better. Why have I been hiding this whole time? <laughs> and so I just came out and was like, oh, yeah, this is so great. <laughs> you know, you put a word to an experience. And it, for me, it was really freeing because for years I didn't have a term, you know. And it's like, oh, no, now other people can identify what this is. And I'm not quite as lost. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of yeah, it. And I think that's one reason... So many of us all of a sudden will gravitate and then come out what seems very quickly to the folks around us, but we just haven't had the words before then to talk about it. You know? And I think that as far as the bandwagon question goes, I stumble around it because I think that we do have looser social expectations around gender play now, and so more people are able or more willing to explore that. Um, than they used to be and are finding that it feels better to them than what they were doing before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally get that. So you have been working on a new project you're about to launch on YouTube. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Uh, so we went into it a little bit earlier when discussing my illness, but I've been working on a YouTube video for a few months on and off during my treatment, uh, which discusses so there's first, like, there's an inter introduction to who I am um, and what led to my illnesses. And then it discusses the, the causes of function and what the symptoms are of functional neurological disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And then it discusses what the implications of all of this are um, on an interpersonal level and on a macro level when discussing, like, public policy and what you're going to vote for and what it means when you're kind of interacting with anyone in the world. That's fantastic. So if people want to find that, or if they want to find you, if they want to follow you on social media, if they want to go to one of your performances, how do we stop Katori? So I'm on all of the things, uh, Katori Knight. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I even have a Patreon. Uh, if you want to go over there and help to support the art that I make, and if you want to see me perform, I will be performing the first Wednesday of May with the Rebel Kings in Oakland. And I will be performing June 27th uh, with Emmy Award winning performer uh, Slater Penny at the Body Political in San Francisco. That's June 27th. I'm really, really excited about that performance. I've been working on it for a while, and I think it's it's going to be special. It, it'll be wonderful. And we have former. Uh... Body political people on this show, Lakia and Andy, were both on it. I think it was about episode eight, and they're a phenomenal duo. So to see you perform with their show is going to be exciting. 
So. I agree. I think they're lovely, and I love the work that they're doing. Well, thank you so much for coming on Fat Ticks, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Speaking of which, so I hear you're Starfleet. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, I am Starfleet. Uh, Are you liking the new, um, what is it? Discovery. Discovery. Yeah. I, it's amazing. It's so wonderful. I do love it. I love that they're really focused on some Klingons. I love that we have, you know, we're meeting new characters and they're not forgetting about the old characters. It, it's great. It's really fun. I, I love it. Okay. But I am a Deep Space Nine. Oh, I am a Deep Space Niner. Pardon me. And I am a Janeway, like... But you know Deep Space Nine was just a command post. was was not a ship. It wasn't a ship, but they had... They gave a black like, man a ship. I mean, a black man a command post, not a ship. I mean, that's even bigger than a ship. That's, that's messed up. He, a command post is bigger than a ship. And he did end up getting Later on. He got the Defiant, which yes. was, like, it's very special. Listen, I, all of the bells, I, all of the whistles. I know we're having a trick moment here, but I'm sorry. I'm like, I am so No, not... I am the strategic operations officer for your local Star Trek fan club. And that means my responsibility is to find volunteer opportunities, ways for us to connect with our local community and be there for them and with them. Right now we have, we're do we usually do four charity drives per year. The okay. one coming up next is a baby drive for weave. Um, then we will do again, a food drive and a period products drive for the Sacramento homeless period project. has been a fat chicks on top presentation with your co-hosts auntie vice and wendy lewis sound provided by sharon smith of a series productions all things fat chicks can be found on our website at fatchicksontop.com that's fatchicksontop.com or check out our social media for more information that's fat girls on top on twitter and Fat Chicks on Top on Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. Please review our previous episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or all podcast streaming services. Please support the Fat Chicks by buying us a tea or purchasing our merch on our website. And thank you for your support.